Natalia Shelburne is the tech lead for design engineering at the New York Times, where she sits at a fascinating crossroad of design and development. She leads a team of front-end developers and brings her own experience as a designer and art director to her current role. We speak with Natalia about her move from design to front-end dev and some of the fears she faced along the way. We also talk about her approach to bridging design and development and what she brings from her prior career as a teacher into the world of product design. So put away your New York Times crossword puzzle and get ready for a great chat with Natalia. We're big fans of Gusto, who make it easy to run payroll, set up healthcare and other benefits for your business. They've made setting up the HR infrastructure for design better a breeze. Gusto's also one of the best design SaaS tools out there. Design Better listeners get three months free once they run their first payroll. Just go to gusto.com slash design better. We'll tell you more about them later in the show. Hey, everybody. Before we kick off our conversation with Natalia, we're really excited to host a new roundtable with some envisioners discussing some work that we did with IBM's Carbon Design System. Returning to the roundtables, Emily Campbell, Director of Experience Strategy now. Hey, Emily. Hey, Eli. Great to see you. Great to see you. And a new guest, Rebecca Kerr, who is our principal conversation and content strategist. Hello. Good to be here. So IBM's design system, Carbon, is one of the world's top 10 most consumed design systems. It's used by IBMers and also its customers. And IBM has a, a huge design team, over 2,000 designers. And they've brought Envision in to do a workshop with their design systems, and there's some really interesting learnings coming out from that. So we're hoping that some of the topics we discuss in this roundtable will be interesting to folks that are implementing or evolving design systems at large organizations. Maybe you could both speak to how you got involved in the project. Yeah, actually, our, our DSM team was in contact with some of the people who work on Carbon, the design system at IBM. They decided to work together to do kind of a design thinking journey mapping workshop around carbon and the, the people who use carbon. And we all learned a lot out of it. We can't speak to everything that IBM learned and is, is thinking about because of it. But at Envision, we, we took a lot away from it that kind of applies to design systems across the board. That was really interesting. Yeah, and I had the opportunity to work with Nick Hahn, who was the design principal there on the IBM team. What was really fun about this conversation is we have, have had an opportunity to work with many different design teams on building and scaling their design systems, but never one at the scale of IBM. And so this was really an opportunity to use the practices of design that we've developed to help teams think about how to design for themselves for their design system and apply it at scale for the IBM group. And unfortunately, I wasn't able to be there in person, but from everything I heard about the, the days of the workshops, it was a really great success. When we were chatting offline about this, Emily, you mentioned this idea of creating a design system as a startup within the enterprise. And I think that's interesting. We've heard it before, uh, Jihad Afona at, at VMware, that's very much how they approached their design system called Clarity. So curious, if, Emily, if you could speak a little bit more to that idea of a, a design system as a startup. Yeah, you know, a lot of teams go into their design system work treating it like a project. Even if it's a project that they have a product team that is going to be focused on, they'll often get some initial success and then things sort of fall off because projects don't scale very well. The reason that 
thinking about it as a startup is really helpful is startups go through different evolutions at different moments of their growth. So the people and the practices and the methods that you need for an early stage startup when you're trying to find product market fit is a completely different set of tactics and strategies than when you're a more mid-sized startup and you're focused on growth and really you know, nailing down your market position. And then, of course, later stage startups when you're starting to figure out how to operationalize your work and, and scale it across new markets, new product opportunities, and new personas. And a design system is very similar. When you're just getting started, you still have to find product market fit. Is this the right team, the right time, the right people to get this thing off of the ground? There's a bigger need for generalists. And then as the design system starts to scale, this is where many teams run into trouble because they're not thinking about shifting those practices and shifting that methodology to growth and then ultimately to new projects, those systems of systems and the things that would need to evolve with it. So it's a bit of a mindset change, but I think what's really great is many designers who are working on design systems have had that experience of growth inside of their product teams. And so they have those skills to do it, just maybe they're not tapping into them the same way that they think they, they can or they should. That's great. I used to be in the startup world, and I think a lot of product people don't understand is we get really excited about building a great product, but if you don't know how to market it and bring in the right partners, it just fundamentally doesn't matter because it's not going to get used. So that's that totally. analogy is it's great. And Rebecca, you mentioned in our prior conversation to this idea of reducing friction and and using design systems and giving back to them. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, it's pretty um, common across the board that when you try to roll out a design system, especially to teams that are required to move quickly, which most product teams are, but especially developers are being judged on their speed, it's kind of a big ask to ask them to, to pause and document things or make a component reusable so that other teams can use it the same way and keep it consistent. You're asking them to do extra work to contribute back to the design system. And if they're being judged on how fast they can deliver, a lot of times it's easier for them to just build something and ship it without documenting it or without trying to make it something that everyone else can use. So if you have a traditional design system with a central governance method that people have to go through a process of trying to request a new component or asking to change a component or asking for a variation of a component, it creates a bottleneck, of course, that people have to go through in order to use the system effectively. So now a lot of teams are discovering that it's actually beneficial to have smaller subsystems that are at the team level or even at the project level or at the product level where teams can have their own sets of components that are using a lot of the same tokens and principles as the mother design system, but that are at a much more um, scalable level of permissions and level of usability so that developers and their design counterparts can very quickly, if they need a new component, they just build it, document it, put it into their little subsystem, and then make it shareable to the rest of their team and to other teams so that they're working in a consistent, repeatable way but they're not having to go through the major bo major bottleneck. And then eventually, hopefully, there's a way to surface those new components and those new patterns that are being used across teams to the bigger design system so that they can evaluate whether this needs to be something that everyone has. Emily, you have, you've mentioned this idea of systems of systems before, which is it's really interesting. Could you dive into that a little bit more and define it and, and talk about it, how it relates to design systems here in IBM? I think there's a few ways of thinking about the systems at play. So there's the literal systems, the different design systems that, as Rebecca was just alluding to, can ladder up to each other in 
a sort of scalable fashion. So you have the the mother system and then the children and so on. But I think we also need to think about the systems that surround our design systems. There's systems of communication. How do we communicate updates? Who's going to be responsible for it? There's systems of learning. So as components are being used in design and being evaluated on their merits and context, how do we communicate that back to other people? Or what are the implications for that when it comes to accessibility standards and our principles of design and differences across brands or across product lines? You know, as we start to get into this realm of systems thinking, thinking at scale as designers, we also need to be respecting the incentive structures and the power structures and the communication structures that circle the actual work we're doing. And the reason why this is so important at scale is because the bigger you get, the more that those outside and more invisible systems can start to affect your work, which is why we need to adopt not just shared governance systems and shared practices and methods as a design systems team, but also use our skills as designers and product people to try and uncover some of those other forces that maybe aren't as visible. So like at IBM, we use journey mapping to actually look at the experience of the people who are going to be using the components to start to think about what are the moments that might trip them up? What are the other things that they're doing or the other things that they're accountable to that can either cause us to be a bottleneck to their work or cause them to have more resistance to adopting certain components or need them at different times or need information at different times. So by mapping that out and by being judicious about taking things slow so that you can test and evolve and iterate at these major milestones of scale and adoption, it actually makes the entire thing a lot more resilient in the end. So I came from the world originally of physical products and physical product design. And physical products have a very long history of having interchangeable parts, right? Every time you build a car, you don't build all the parts from the ground up. There's systems of parts, and these parts are interchangeable and usable across different products. And it's only more recently that digital products have kind of adopted this idea of interchangeable parts, essentially. Do you think there's any learnings that can be had from different types of industries, such as those building physical products that can be brought in to the design systems world? Or are you seeing that anywhere at spots like IBM? I think the thing about that that starts to become more relevant to digital design today is the way that we're designing for agnostic context in a sense that we weren't five years ago. So in the physical world, there are some items that have a pretty discrete context around them, like a chair, right? I know where my chair is going to be. Generally speaking, it's going to be at a table or a desk, and so I have a sense of the constraints that I need. Whereas what you were just describing, like car parts or these more advanced mechanical systems, we might not even know all of the different ways that people will utilize those products. And so we have to be intentionally modular and find that balance between actual use and expected use, but also build into our processes the ability to evolve to those those uses that we weren't seeing, right? So the systems of quality control and tracking the ways that people are uh, using the products or the places they're being sold so that if you need to recall something, you have that visibility I think it's sort of interesting as we're seeing some of the ways that data is being used in this current health scare that we're experiencing. I've been reading about the ways that manufacturers of food track food throughout the system of consumption so that if there's a problem, they can get on top of that sooner. That same scale is needed inside of our digital design because the components that we're building, 
even down to the the styles are going to be used in ways that the teams creating those styles and components might not be anticipating. So how you track their usage, how you track their efficacy in, in context. When something becomes an issue, bringing that back to the core and looking at it at the system level as opposed to always dealing with it ad hoc. Those are the types of things that we're going to have to learn how to adjust to as we continue to build these gigantic scaling digital systems, similar to what you would see in the in the more physical world. I think there's an interesting component of that too, especially in the food industry, where they have to have very rigorous tracking of every ingredient that they're using and every compliance regulation that they have to follow per country. And if they don't have that, there could be a major catastrophe or loss. So they have that tracked across the entire production system after release and, you know, in R&D and before, like throughout the whole process. And I think about that for, for compliance too, that a lot of design systems now are being used, at least in part, especially in industries like banking and government, to control for compliance and accessibility. And how cool is that if we can, you know, look at components on an individual basis and track whether they're compliant as laws change and where they're being used in which products, just the way they would be in a food product and be able to, you know, recall a component or update a component across the board so that it's always compliant. I think that's a a great place to wrap it up. Rebecca and Emily, thanks so much for being on the roundtable. Thanks, Eli. Thanks, Eli. Now let's jump over to our interview with Natalia Shelburne, Senior Software Engineer, Technical Lead at the New York Times. Support for Design Better comes from Uplift Desk, creators of office furniture designed to help you work better and live healthier. If you sit all day at work, like most of us do, and you've never tried a desk that can transition between sitting and standing, let me tell you, it's a complete game changer. I often struggle with hip pain that's caused by prolonged sitting, and a standing desk has helped me switch up my posture during the workday so I can avoid that pain and just feel better. Standing while I work, it helps me get those creative juices flowing, and it helps me focus and stay productive. I'm way more alert, which is helpful, especially after lunch. Each standing desk from Uplift Desk is built with solid materials. They have so many different beautiful woods to choose from. They're built to last, and you can customize it to match your space. Plus, you get free shipping, free returns, and an industry-leading 15-year warranty that covers the complete desk. Eli and I love their products, and we know that you will too. Just go to upliftdesk.com and use code DESIGNBETTER5, and you'll get 5% off your order. That's upliftdesk.com to get 5% off your entire order with promo code DESIGNBETTER5. Check them out. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com, the tool that makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and goals, and the Wondersuite tools will automatically lay out your WordPress website or store in minutes. Seriously. From there, you can customize your design, pick your brand colors, and add blocks. No custom theme or coding required. You'll get content suggestions that you can keep or revise. And with Yoast SEO built in, we automatically help you get found in search engines. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins to an AI-powered help bot, 
Our built-in tools make WordPress wonderful for everyone. Maybe that's why Bluehost has been recommended by WordPress.org since 2005. Whether you're a beginner or a pro, you can join over 2 million Bluehost users. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. That's bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Support for Design Better comes from Gusto, who make running a small business easy. Get three months free at gusto.com slash design better once you run your first payroll. I've run a few small businesses in my career, and each time I've set one up, the prospect of figuring out payroll and HR, it just freaks me out. But then I found Gusto. It's an incredible tool that Eli and I use to run our own payroll here at Design Better. Gusto made setup easy, and they even helped us sort out tax registrations with multiple states. Gusto is a brilliant tool. It's well-designed, and it's incredibly usable. Design Better listeners can get three months free once you run your first payroll. Just go to gusto.com slash design better. Can't recommend it enough. Natalia, thanks for joining us on the Design Better podcast. Excellent to be here. And we are here again today in Sydney, lovely Sydney, Australia, and Natalia is joining us. Now, Natalia, you, you do some interesting work at the New York Times, very focused on engineering, but you have this design background. Maybe you could talk to us about your origin story, where you come from, how did you get into engineering and design? Well, I like to say I took the scenic route to software engineering because I certainly didn't have the traditional starting coding at five, computer science degree, and all of those kind of cliches that you tend to hear about. I was always told you're too creative to work with computers, you're too good with people to work with computers, and so fine arts, here I come. And so that's what I did. In college, I majored in fine art and psychology, I guess that intersection of being interested in people mm. and art. And right after, I started teaching design and eventually became an art director at a nonprofit. It was a school basically started by teachers who said, we can do better. And by the end, we were running four summer camps. I did basically everything you could possibly do from sitting on the board to teaching macrame one semester, digital illustration, just anything that would grow the creativity of both the students we had as well as the community around. I even at one point had those painting wine classes and great reviews. <laughs> <laughs> but the idea here was I wore so many hats trying to make um, kind of make up a program and make up this organization. So I had to build things, figure things out. So it wasn't a really big transition to doing that with code. I had to solve the problem of how do I enroll people in the summer camps I started, and my budget was zero. Mm -hmm. So I basically looked online, like, how hard could this be? I built some GeoCities and, you know, dabbled around with front-end stuff when I was a teenager. A lot had changed. A lot had changed. Yeah. But I found that it really, you know, was an extension of everything I was doing. And so I started learning more and more about it. I got deeply curious about how things worked. And one year, I just said, I'm going to go try a startup. I'm going to just see where this path leads. And I never lost or put down any of the things I was doing. It just felt like growing and adding to it. So I want to I wanted to go back even further for just a, a minute. Your family actually immigrated when you were very young from Siberia, mm -hmm. correct? Yeah. And your parents were both scientists? Molecular part? biologists. Molecular yeah. biologists. <laughs> so how did that kind of upbringing affect the way that you approached your education and career? I think I had a lot of influence from my dad who from early on was like science and art are deeply connected. So 
one of the things that my parents did for me was they handed me a pencil as soon as I could hold one. Mm. Um, and so I guess it may be kind of unique that in my household, it was just expected that the arts are elevated right along there with the sciences. So when you hear that message from your parents, nobody else can convince you that somehow the arts exist outside of or secondary to mm -hmm. um, to science. So, I mean, I know they wanted me to go into biology, but I rebelled and did the art thing. <laughs> so, I'm just curious, when did you come to the States? I was seven. You're so seven. Just okay. turned seven. So pretty fun time. A lot of stuff happening in 1993 in the Soviet Union slash Russia. Yeah. Did you speak English at that point? or No, zero English. Just kind of plopped into suburbia from Siberia. That's probably going to be a thing from Siberia to suburbia, but uh, we, North <laughs> that's, Carolina. That's a book title right yeah. there. <laughs> yeah, my a memoir. No, my parents were basically brought on to do a fellowship right there in Research Triangle Park in North Carolina. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we we're only going to come in for just a, a little while while things settle down at home. And then, of course, you know, as soon as my brother and I got settled, my parents realized, like, okay, we have to make a choice. They're going to stay here. Mm -hmm. And so that's it. That's how I ended up on the East Coast. It's interesting, you know, the idea of like your parents elevating the idea of the arts in your mind. So they're kind of training you to use both hemispheres of your brain that you're, you know, they're very scientifically focused, quantitative, but also thinking creatively as well. And then coming over here, not speaking language, that probably taught you a lot of skills that stick with you today. I think the main thing it taught me was how to see things from the perspective of other mm. and become immediately aware of places where I can blend in right away and not be seen as another. There were a lot of immigrants in my community, and I realized, you know, in the community that I was in, I didn't have to, like, if I didn't open my mouth, nobody would treat me differently. Sure. Um, and once my accent disappeared, I realized I could blend in, but there were other friends I had who couldn't. So that just gave me a very clear understanding of kind of the privilege of the way we look, the in-groups that are formed, but also forever identifying as someone on the outside. So I've definitely uh, really considered it for my art thesis. It's just the idea of otherness, but it's yeah. not what I went with eventually. Does it? Do you use that in your career? Do you feel like those skills are applicable in your career? I think absolutely. You kind of made the point that science is very analytical, the scientific sure. method, but it still takes a great degree of creativity. You're always venturing into the unknown. You're problem mm -hmm. finding. It's a very important way of divergent thinking. And so the ability to take yourself out of the default or what's always been done and think of things from a different perspective has been, I feel like, just like how it was growing up. So I feel like when I approach something, I'm always asking the question of like, what else can it be? I like to use the phrase option three because usually people say, well, there's mm. this or that. And I was like, what's option three? What's this creative <laughs> solution we haven't even thought of? And why are we always limited to one or the other? So I feel like my greatest contribution is either saying what's option three or trying to come up with that option three as fast as I quickly can. You wrote a really nice blog post about your fears and the realities about moving into a tech career. The fears about isolation, about the difficult subject matter, about engineering field not being creative and about not being welcoming. Maybe could you talk a little bit about a couple of those fears that you had and what ended up as being the reality? So I wrote that pretty early on. I thought it was pretty important to just say it out loud, kind of name your fears to overcome them. But I th think it's 
those are pretty valid fears that I had. I mean, it, I definitely have encountered every single thing I wrote out there. But instead of focusing on, yes, there were some, like, I thought it was going to be bad, and then it was at times. I think what was really amazing was to find that those are just outliers in the experience that I've had in that if I did what I always did was just focus on community, focus on people, focus on the people, you know, to quote Mr. Rogers, those who are trying to help, mm. then this is in a place of incredible potential and incredible opportunity. And it's absolutely worthwhile to be part of. But yeah, it was pretty scary because the stereotypes are pretty bad when you when you tell someone yeah, I'm going to I'm going to stop being art director. I'm going to put down my paintbrush and I'm going to do tech now and the image they have in their heads of who you are versus who you say you're going to be just clash and they give you this look and just tell you well, like how are you going to give up creativity forever and stop having social contact with people and it's like okay, well that's not what happened. So just to be clear, that's part of those like false dichotomies people like to embrace. Yeah, and you've said the dichotomy is unnecessary hyperbole and it's harmful to the entire industry. Mm-hmm. Engineers are hearing that they're not creative enough to step outside the code. Designers are told that their artistic minds can't possibly grasp the logic of engineering. And we're told to pick a side and mm-hmm. stick with it. You said it comes down to respect. It's hard to appreciate someone's skills when you know nothing about yeah. them. I, I absolutely believe that's what it is. I mean, we like to pattern match. We love to put things in categories and label them. And, you know, it's all humans, not just software engineers or designers or anybody working in tech, especially where you have to collaborate with people with different mental models of how things work or different concerns, you know, concerned with the user experience versus concerned with the system architecture. You're going to run into these problems where you have to find a shared vocabulary, a shared language, an understanding of each other. And we have really low expectations in tech for some reason that maybe just self-fulfilling prophecy of you, you're, you know, I was told don't go into tech because you're good with people. How many people were told to go into tech because they're not good with people? Mm. Expectations shape reality and people are finding that we're kind of not expecting more of them. So I don't really know what the solution is other than just to expect more because what other industry calls someone a mythical being when they can do two things. I mean, isn't that what a unicorn is like in tech? You can do design and engineering. Let's just give you this incredible title of a creature so rare, it's a mythical being. And, you know, the thing I always say is should be as common as a horse. Mm. Let's stop being unicorns. Let's be horses. People should be, and they crave being multidisciplinary and learning outside of their comfort zone. That's That's something that, you know, as an educator... That's just so understood, but for some reason, a lot of people in tech fight it. How does that change the way teams work when you have that sort of mentality? It grinds everything to a halt. You get someone who is a gatekeeper with all of the kind of information who cranks everything out and grinds everybody else around them to a halt. When you know when someone doesn't respect you, there's no trust. And when there's no trust or autonomy, People don't do creative work. It's a creativity killer. It's a productivity killer. For a little while, you can patch it with somebody really high-performing on the team, but it's never as as good as when you have a highly functioning team all collaborating together. And when you have the mindset that you're describing 
of you know thinking in a multidisciplinary way, thinking about what's option three. How does when you work with people like that, how does that change the workflow? I think we're always trying to get people to collaborate. Like here, you designer collaborate with a software engineer, and it's a strange forced moment. Whereas when I try to, because it's like, how do you do that? I mean, I'm I'm already collaborating. I'm doing my best. I'm yeah. you know I'm trying to figure it out. But one of the questions I asked someone who like she came to me and she was saying, I'm really struggling on my team right now. And through a series of conversations, I just had to ask her, I was like, do you identify as a software engineer? Is that who you are? And she's like, no, I mean, there's so much more to me. And I was just like, then go talk to the designer as just a person who also cares about these things and knows a lot about these things and isn't defined by the specific label and job description you have. And I think that's what I'm always trying to get at is that we have to shift our thinking about ourselves as the multidisciplinary curious people that we are who are able to learn and that the barriers we have in tech or that we've invented are completely arbitrary. So after that, it's just a matter of how do these two people work together? I would love to say it works 100% of the time, but it does at least start a good conversation. Like, why am I not allowed to do something what is this arbitrary barrier and why? Speaking about barriers, up till recently, you, you led an all-women engineering team at the Times, and that's obviously all too rare a situation. Curious about what you learned doing that and what maybe other people could apply from your, your learnings. I think it was a massively empathy-building exercise. <laughs> you know, one of the false conclusions I feel like people are just baiting me into making is just like, hire all women only. We're better at... St-. It's like, that's... I mean, we're just... You know, everybody brings something to the table, but where I did see something that was very different was the New York Times is the first place I was, I had a female engineering coworker to even to start. And then to be on a team where all of the engineers are women, just because we have so many that it just so happened that on this one, the people who jumped on the opportunity were all women. Like, that was amazing. And feeling like the default, you know, I talked about what it's like to be the other. I'm very familiar with being the other. But for once, feeling like I'm the default was a complete awesome experience. And that made me realize why so many people get very defensive when I say, you need inclusion and diversity. Because it was like, well, aren't we hitting all our deadlines? Aren't we an amazing team of people doing amazing work? What, you know, what, what could we possibly need? And I'm like, ah, there's that thinking and there's that argument because it feels good to be the default. But because we know better, we know we're missing perspective. It's like, we know that when we just had a a male engineer join the team, it's like, we know he's going to feel, we know what that feeling is to be the only one in the room. So we're like, we got to do the work, make sure we're paying attention and we're doing the inclusive things that we always want to be done for us. So Nothing really dramatic there. Like it was revolution. It was like, it's just about the same. Just I didn't have to fight to be included for once. And honestly, that left me a lot more time to do my work. And I wish that for absolutely everyone so that they can just focus on the things they want to do without having to prove themselves that they belong in the room in the first place. Let's talk a little bit more about your work because you have really interesting ideas about the intersection of design and engineering. How do you approach your work at the New York Times with your team to decrease the gap between those two disciplines and make a better workflow? Well, I I would love to take all the credit, but I got incredibly lucky with the designers that I work with. 
Barbara DeWild is just an incredible designer and also Jonna Paulino and Mimi Thang. So we have three designers who are just so deeply thoughtful and so collaborative and are always asking, you know, for engineering, what's possible? What can we do? We're, you know, they'll sit and whiteboard with us. Mm-hmm. And it just creates just such a feeling of we're going to do something. We're going to build something. We're going to make this happen. And kind of in this ecosystem, because they're so wonderful and inclusive, I get to say, yes, we can make that happen. We can architect a system. I'm going to figure something out. We're going to leverage this technology. We're, we're going to make something work. We're going to make miracles happen. And we don't have a gap between design and engineering on our team because it's this feedback loop of trust and inclusion and then trying to enable each other back and forth that even when things come down like, like oh, we can't, we can't actually do this design this way. There's a whole dependency on another team. It's not on the roadmap. Something, you know, classic in a large organization. But then we just bounce right back and come up with something together and keep going. So a lot of what my role is, I like to oversimplify and say my role is to say yes, find creatively, you know, option three, how to make something happen when they're being creative and inventive. I'm right there. Just how do I enable them? And how do I make sure that the engineers on my team as well are are part of that and, and grow that culture? What you described just a minute ago of being in the same room together, whiteboarding together, and that, you know, there's this willingness on both sides to be part of that creative process. That alone sounds pretty unique. And I suspect that there are a lot of folks who are listening today who kind of pine for that experience. How did you get there? It's not the norm for our workflow. I mean, I'm not saying that every single time we do something, we have to get in a room. I mean, remote concerns aside, sometimes we're just not even in the same time zone. Sure. But it's more of we know how to jump into a project, self-assemble into solving a problem that sometimes takes several people to solve. But otherwise, we're actually pretty self-contained. Like the, the communication is there. I know what kind of designs they're working on and what the roadmap is, what they're working for, so I can make sure to bake that in at the start and set up the system that way. We got there by being very explicit in when it's time to brainstorm and wonder what if, and when it's time to converge down into here's our very, very real reality of what can actually happen. A lot of times when people try to get in a room and start whiteboarding, it's just an uncontrolled what-if session sprinkled in with people not realizing maybe it's not the time to shoot down ideas. And then before long, it falls apart because you're not even aligned on what your goal is. So for us, it's we just agree ahead of time. What are we trying to solve? What do we need to come out of this room with? And I guess by just adding a little bit of structure there it and very clear communication about uh, what we're actually trying to accomplish. It, it doesn't take much, but then it's it works out. I think a lot of times when those things fall apart, it's just people not aligned about why they're in the room in the first place. You started your career in education, and then you moved into design and then into tech. What what did you bring from your the education part of your career into your current role, Ooh, building that's, products? That's a big one. Uh, you know how everybody's always saying you have to mentor in tech? where are we teaching people those skills? Because for me, the most offensive thing happened. I mean, I climbed to the top of a career ladder and then immediately down to the bottom as a junior front-end developer, basically. And you know what I heard every step of the way? We don't need you to worry about that stuff right now or just focus on the code. And then at some point, here are some engineers for you to mentor. (laughs) And it's like, wow, if I hadn't had this whole career where I learned how to do that, 
these people would be in trouble and at my mercy. So what I bring is, I guess, a sense of panic and realization that I need to create content all the time, tutorials. That's, I mean, I've just, that's how I got into speaking was just, oh my God, we need to make a lesson plan and <laughs> put this up there so that these conversations I keep having, I'll just do this in front of everybody real quick so it gets across. I think really where I see mentorship is just, it's just teaching. But one of the funniest things that I encounter is just the complete look of surprise on engineers' faces when, you know, you look on their desks and they'll have all these books like Python, JavaScript, you know, five books of JavaScript. And I'm like, get ye to a college bookstore and look up the education section. Did you know there are just textbooks and textbooks and textbooks full of how to teach effectively? And they just look at me like, huh, <laughs> like never occurred to them. That's another skill that you have to, dimension of yourself, you have to um, grow and learn. And so, you know, it doesn't just come naturally to people. It's, you can learn it. The fact that you understand design and you understand engineering, you probably could help us uh, and, and all of the listeners, uh, many of whom are designers, understand where they might be falling short and how they think about engineering partnerships and that workflow with engineers. What do you think that designers need to change their mind about in working with engineers? I would love to say that it's all on them to fix this, but I absolutely see it as an ecosystem and a, a feedback loop of if there wasn't communication early on, some assumptions may have been baked into the code that make the engineer say no to an, a designer where they expect yes, and then it becomes just back and forth more and more contentious to where the communication breaks down and it's like, you just don't want to do the cool design. I have, mm -hmm. to do I have to design boring things that you can build. And engineers keep being frustrated because it's like, you keep designing things that don't work with the system we have. And it's like, well, how are they supposed to understand the system you have? So takeaway practical advice is ask them for a style guide or a component library and say, please give me some transparency into the code of what is actually in there. Have them walk you through, even just like, what are the color variables you got in there? Like, are you still using gray 40 from <laughs> five years ago? Did anyone delete that when we updated design? Is that still in there just floating about? One of the best things you can do is just collaborate, like talk to product and say, let's do a design audit. Let's do a code and design audit of what's actually happening what is our layout? Like what's happening there? Is it piece by piece, like just kind of put together piece by piece or, or do we have a system for that? Let's prioritize making it a system so we're not stuck in an endless cycle of VQA. Natalia, we always like to ask our guests, what are you finding inspiring right now? It doesn't have to be about work. It could be a book. It could be a person. It could be your kids. What are we finding inspiring? I am, well, I'm always inspired by my daughter, Claire. She's almost two. But what inspires me is that no matter the bubbles that we work in, in our work, you know, we're, we're just on these small teams doing this kind of little bit of work that can feel so just like, this is my whole world. But when you zoom out a little bit and realize there's, there's just a pattern emerging in this industry where we can be sitting here in Sydney, Australia, talking about something and nodding right along because I've had things happen at work that you can really relate to. And I can have a conversation with a designer in Australia who gets immediately what I'm talking about. There is a powerful global 
trend and community that's being built. And I'm just super excited to be part of it, helping shape it and make it a good place for everybody. Because, you know, for me, I found tech much later than most people. I was in my mid-20s when I was just like, oh no, <laughs> maybe there's something else for me. And, you know, as a career switcher into tech, it was it was very scary to think like, what if I won't be included? What if I'm here too late? And I just want to make this, I get really fired up by trying to make this an inclusive place for everybody. And Natalia, thanks so much for joining us on the show. Thank you for having me. <laughs>